Hello, and welcome to The Bigger Truth in Tech. I'm your host, Scott Sinclair, and today we're speaking with my good friend, Peter Meister, CEO of C4i Technologies. Our discussion, we're going to focus on the future of containers, how Kubernetes is changing the IT infrastructure landscape, and will Kubernetes eventually overtake hypervisors as the dominant application platform? And most importantly, how to spot those partners and vendors that truly understand Kubernetes. Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. Why don't you, for our listeners, provide everyone a, a brief background on you and yourself and what you're doing right now? Yeah, thanks, Scott, for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you on the podcast today. My name is Peter Meister. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of C4I Technologies. I've been in the IT field for approximately 35 years, did a little bit over 15 years running the Windows Server business at Microsoft. I was the head of product management at SecondWatch for a little bit over three years, and I was the head of hybrid cloud product management at Atachi. And, you know, my background is in uh, terminal services, virtualization, cybersecurity, um, as well as operating systems. So I have a broad scope around that. And at Atachi, obviously, strongly around storage and, of course, hybrid and virtualized storage platforms. You know, one of the things is really trying to get a handle on uh, containers and the rise of Kubernetes and, and this essentially new wave of application and the impacts on infrastructure. I want to start this conversation more at a high level, but I'd love to get your take on how containers, Kubernetes, container-based apps, and, and cloud-native application development, how that's changing the infrastructure landscape. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, Kubernetes uh, reminds me of hypervising. When I, when I look at the transformation that Kubernetes is bringing to IT, especially across hybrid, it is very, very much in alignment with what happened with the hypervisor. Um, I think when you look at Kubernetes in both the bare metal and the virtual forms, obviously it started its journey virtually and it's had a great run over the last five years. It's grown exponentially um, in that respect. But I really am focusing more on the bare metal now because what we're looking at is the future of where it heads and bare metal provisioning on the operating system side is just the natural progression where the chipsets will enlighten and support Kubernetes natively within the CPUs. I do know that Intel and AMD are working on that initiative. Um, and, and in that respect, um, that is really uh, almost a copy paste of what happened with the hypervisors. And so I do think it's a massive, massive momentum. I don't think there's any way to stop it. I think the hypervisor will lose marketplace uh, position. Eventually, uh, uh, Kubernetes may in fact overtake the hypervisor and a lot of people will freak out uh, about that statement. But I do believe there will be a time in the distant future where Kubernetes will be the bare metal provisioner of choice. In that respect, it's changing everything. One of the beauties of Kubernetes is what it's doing for legacy systems. The cloud is full of great companies that utilize and consume the cloud, but the legacy applications still sit in the data center. There's a massive problem underlying enterprise companies today, and that is their legacy application footprint. And across the world, there is a really hard challenge in not only refactoring and replatforming, but modernizing those applications because there's been only the hypervisor. And to chunk up a monolithic mainframe application and move it to a hypervisor is a multi-year initiative, very painful, very expensive, hard to determine if it even will complete on time or complete at all. And if you look at the application modernization business as a whole, 
there's more failures in modernizing uh, applications than, than there are successes. Now bringing Kubernetes, a whole new technology that can take a monolithic application and chunk it off and containerize it rather than rebuild it, we can refactor and replatform. So when you look at Amazon and the likes of Sandy Carter and, and of course, Andy Jassy and what their goals are for growing consumption, one of the biggest areas of growth is getting those enterprise applications up to the cloud. And Kubernetes is really driving massive acceleration for them to be able to realize those modernization initiatives. And the same for Azure with Tad Brockaway and the guys over there at Microsoft Azure, and the same with Korean at Google. They all need to get those major applications up there to truly start to get the massive enterprise consumption. And Kubernetes is literally leading the charge there, no doubt about it. You know, one of the things that always fascinates me is how quickly the larger IT community just designated Kubernetes as the future of containers and container-based orchestration. Uh, yeah. you know, normally with new technologies, there tends to be competing standards, people debate and discuss and, well, which vendors are going to be, which technology platform is really going to take over. And with Kubernetes, it was essentially everyone said, yep, it's that one. You know, you brought up so many interesting ideas there around application modernization and making it cloud native, because we've seen the same thing in our research, whether you call it modernizing apps or refactoring or everything else, these are projects that they're projects is something very important. These are long lengthy things that take time and resources and have risk and lots of complexities involved. Are you seeing lines where people say, you know what, the effort involved in refactoring these apps is essentially a problem that's just too difficult. It just makes sense for us to just completely re-adopt a new platform. Or do you think it's going to be where enterprises just say, nope, we're going to move. Everything's going to get to containers. It's just going to take us a longer time. Yeah, it's a really great question. And to your point, if you look across the broad spectrum of players in the space of app modernization, like I said earlier, about 50% of those modernization initiatives, they fail. And they fail no matter how good you are at trying to do it. And then what happens with that CEO is he does exactly what you're talking about. He says, I'm not going to try to refactor, replatform, or modernize this app anymore. I'm simply going to start developing a new application. And he starts to look out to companies like Benchmark or others to start to DevOps into the new cloud native realm. And, and in that respect, that is strongly happening for at least 50% of these initiatives because the underlying failure and the past failures they may have already had are extremely expensive failures. The second thing that's driving them to do this through redevelopment versus refactor or modernize is the cost of that mainframe and maintaining that mainframe contract. These contracts are 80, $90 million contracts. Not only are they held hostage on these monolithic systems because they're not getting real-time access to the data on that mainframe, but they're spending a fortune to maintain that legacy system. So, you know, at some point, the CIO, the CEO, and the CFO say, I'm cutting this off, this expensive $90 million mainframe. I could put that money to a development team and start to do a multi-year redevelopment effort that'll get me to a much more cloud native construct, much more hybridized construct where I can really be first to market in my vertical. And so we are seeing at least 50% of the 
decisions go down to, I'm just going to build a new app and maintain my legacy until that new app is completed. But the other 50% are taking on the challenge. And if you go to the right vendor, you can get this done and get this done at a very, very strong price point. To me, I think that's a very interesting point because that aligns with some of the research that we've done as well is IT is not only in, in a complexity crisis, but we have a skill shortage crisis. When I talk to players in this space that are helping organizations modernize their apps or do cloud native development or advise or provide services in that area, one of the big things that comes up is the scarcity of talent and that talent is at a premium. I'd love for your commentary on that. What have you seen in terms of, you know, the differences between the organizations that, quote, get it? And the ones that are sitting there saying, well, no, I'm, I'm sure we support Kubernetes. It's, you know, it's like a smaller VM. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. You know, I've learned this through, you know, almost the last three careers I've had that in order to be really good in this space, you have to pay to play. First, to answer the question, resources are extremely finite here, whether it's application modernization resources or DevOps hybrid resources, they're finite. There's a competition to acquire them. You have to compete to get these people and they are hard to keep. And you have to really give them extremely fun and challenging work to keep them. So when you get them, you, you, you pay to play, they're expensive. You can get one or two of these people and they're worth 10 or 20 of your people. And they can ramp up and expand your teams and grow your teams quickly. The second thing is in the application modernization side, it's a lost art form. How many people know COBOL and Fortran and Pascal? We're talking about languages that have not had a steady pace of resources in the last 30 years, but yet these monolithic systems are built upon these application development platforms and these languages. And so it's very difficult to acquire people that know COBOL. A matter of fact, the first problem in App Modernization 101 is being able to actually vet the application and assess the application, determine the application itself. Just being able to do that in most of these modernization initiatives is a multi-year challenge because they don't have the developers who built it. And this is a real problem, right? Assessment and discovery is itself a challenge before you can ever get to the point of modernizing. Well, and it begs the question, I mean, if you're an enterprise, why even take on this challenge by yourself? That's a really good question. I mean, for a lot of them, to your point, they just give up. They can't find them. Um, they don't want to spend the money. They find out it's going to be as expensive as a redevelopment effort. And in that respect, they decide to go off and they redevelop. To your point, it is extremely expensive to modernize off of a monolithic application. It's, it's double-digit million-dollar in, in, in endeavor, at a minimum. It's also a three to four year project. And some people don't have the money or the patience for that. So they would rather put the money towards a redevelopment. And that's why I think it's a 50-50 split. And down the road, it may get more and more to the advantage of redevelopment. But right now, because of the DevOps shortages, right? And the DevSecOps shortages around the world, there's not enough of those resources. I mean, we really have an IT issue going on. People are not interested in learning these skill sets at scale like they used to back 10, 15 years ago. So finding enough DevOps people to go off and do the redevelopment effort is just as challenging as going off and trying to do the monolithic app 
modernization initiative with the legacy development teams. It's, it's, it's a catch 22, really. I want to shift gears a little bit because I, I think we've done, you know, this, this has been a great conversation around unpacking the risk associated with, you know, that, that refactoring process, that turning things into a cloud, you know, making applications more of a cloud native architecture. But then you also have the challenge or the risk of once you've done that, actually being able to have the app deliver all the same things in terms of performance, availability, all the, you know, it, it essentially not compromising on any of that portability while also accessing the benefits of why you refactored in the first place, the agility, the flexibility, the ability to move faster, all those sorts of things. One of the things that I, that I know we've talked about before in the past is the complexities of ensuring that an infrastructure can actually support the scale and demands of cloud native apps once they've been refactored. I'd love to get your thoughts on where are the big differences between maybe what some might call traditional infrastructure versus infrastructure that's really designed for these cloud native workloads. When you look at mainframe monolithic systems that have been running in the verticals, especially just using financial services as a really great example, because there's so much mainframe there still today, they run in the data center and they run close to the applications and they scale really well to perform the solutions that the banks need and the financial services need because they uh, are really, really close to the source of their application. That is one of the beauties of you know, having million dollar and multi-million dollar data centers like these guys do. And they're able to perform and respond and the data comes back to the customers and the front end systems quickly. That's really the goal of a banking institution. They want to get the data back to their clients as fast as possible. And, and the mainframe does that well. It doesn't necessarily give them data intelligence and data analytics power, but it gives them fast return on data. When you go to hybrid and you start to DevOps a hybrid application, you're, you're going away from the data center. And that's a really scary thing for a lot of these financial institutions, because what happens is you're instituting latency, distance between your application and the underlying data. Where is it? Is the data still in the data center, but now the application's developed up in the hybrid cloud? A lot of these initial deployments have gone down those routes and they've had a lot of challenges, whether it's in FinServe or retail, and I won't mention names, but there have been a lot of big companies that have gone to the DevOps, cloud native, developing paralyzed mission critical cloud applications, but they still keep that data in the data center and that distance between an Azure or an Amazon data center and their data center becomes a real latency point. And now the customer's not getting access to that data fast enough. And when you scale that to hundreds of thousands to millions of clients, you just exponentially cause yourself pain. So you have to really decide early on how you're going to architecture this new application, this new hybrid or cloud native application. Are you going to put it all into the cloud or are you going to separate the application and the data layer? You know, and in that respect, Unfortunately, many decided to separate the application and data layer and keep the data in the data center. And that's caused a lot of problems. My recommendation, obviously, is that they get to a cloud native footprint and they put the data and the application together up in the cloud. And in that respect, when they do do that, then they get back to that same level of capability, performance, and access to data 
to their clients at the speed and reliability that they're looking for, but they also get an additional benefit. And that is the unleashing of that data at scale for real-time analytics, for data analytics, for insight, for all those things that they wanted that the mainframe couldn't give them now are there for them. But they have to commit to the cloud to do that. And many are afraid of putting that data up in the cloud because of the security and the vulnerabilities that have been assessed up there. So I can understand why we're in this debacle, but at some point they're going to have to commit to putting it into the cloud if they want to get all of that benefit. So quick research stat that we have, which I think, you know, aligns with this. We did a study of organizations that were either containers or actively investigating or, or um, container-based uh, applications. And when we asked them, okay, where, where is your ideal deployment environment? 70% said it's going to be a combination of public cloud and private data centers. I mean, containers were designed for portability in that idea of when they were ephemeral and stateless, but as they started becoming used more and more for stateful applications, then you have that tied to data. And it's it's this weird combination where the design and the promise was around, oh, well, they're, they're stateless. So you can move them, you can spin them up, you can put them in different locations, you can spin them up, spin them down, move them over here. But then when that data, and God, this term gets used to death, but it's data's heavy, right? Data has gravity, data is hard to move. And part of that is just due to the actual time it takes to actually send the information. But there's also part of that is things like security, like availability, like resiliency. And this is all stuff that needs to be comprehended. You know, I absolutely agree with the idea that the app and data need to be close together. When you start separating that, you start introducing latency unnaturally, bad things can happen. Have you seen things that are essential to either within the cloud environment or within on-premises environments? things to ensure that organizations get the most of their cloud-native apps, regardless of where they're, uh, they decide to deploy it, for example. If a customer proceeds to a private cloud deployment vector, they can be just as successful in their cloud-native journey inside of a data center as they could be by going up to a cloud services provider like Amazon, Google, or, or Microsoft. So yeah, either way they do it, they can have a very strong success when they maintain that application and that data layer as closest as possible to the source. And I say that it's a speed of light problem. You cannot go faster than the speed of light. And that's really the, the challenge. And in that respect, uh, success will happen in either form, but getting a private cloud up in a data center is a very expensive undertaking. And when you look at that type of migration from traditional high virtualization environments in the data center to go to a private cloud, it's a costly uh, a decision point. And a lot of customers are having a hard time with that economically right now, especially post the pandemic. It's, 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 it's a maturity issue that's come of age where they trust that the clouds now have come to the point point where they can put some of that investment up there. But to your point, if they go to say VMware with Tanzu and TAC and they use application catalog and they've got that vSphere 7 running with VCF, they're going to have a great time. If they go with Microsoft Azure Stack or if they go with an open source derivative, they can really you know, perform a, a really good private cloud like Open Nebula is really popular in Europe, right? They can get that done. But uh, I, I think they're going to spend a lot, right? And that's the challenge they have to determine. If they go to the cloud, it's much cheaper to do that because the infrastructure is already prepped and ready and all they have to do is 
start to work on their applications and developing their end state infrastructure. They don't have to invest in the back end or the upgrading of the ISV vendor agreements, enterprise licenses that are associated to continue a data centric uh, a directive. I don't see many doing that. You know, coming out of Atachi, where most of my customers were data center centric, even Atachi's customers are making moves to the cloud. There's really no stopping the gravity change to go to the cloud providers because they're becoming mature now. People are getting to the point of confidence in, in traditional infrastructure, not necessarily data. To your point, data is the one thing I don't see people trusting the clouds for at scale. And that's something that unless they solve it will be a really big Achilles heel long-term in terms of moving these applications and these hybrid solutions truly up to a cloud native form. Um, I think you're going to see a hybrid model myself personally for the next 10 to 15 years because the data is still very, very hard to guarantee regulatory compliance security up in those cloud providers. And for that, um, they're going to continue to need data centers to maintain that security, that physical security that they see. It's unfortunate that we're here because the cloud is not new, right? We've been in the cloud for well over, you know, close to 17 years now. But here's the deal. You know this better than anybody. If we take Kubernetes, for instance, and you go and look at Azure AKS or AWS EKS, or you go look at GKE with GCP, when they deployed their native Kubernetes services up in the cloud providers, they did not secure their clusters at the edge. When you do things like that, you get what you're asking for. You'll get a lot of CISOs that go, whoa, I'm never putting my stuff up there. You guys don't even understand security up in the cloud. You guys literally put your clusters out on the edge with no firewalls in front of them. When I automatically deployed with you, my cluster IPs were public. So that's a real problem too, right? You, and, and this is the problem of humans, right? When you bring humans in the loop, we all make mistakes and we tend to repeat our mistakes generation over generation. We saw the same thing in hypervising. When hypervising came in, there was security was an afterthought. When terminal services happened, security was an afterthought. When client server happened, security was an afterthought. But yet here we are in Kubernetes and security is an afterthought. Um, so I think those are the things that are concerning from a liability and risk perspective, because remember, in the cloud, the risk of security is a shared burden. And that's a real different experience than having complete security control in the data center. You're not completely liable, um, but neither is the cloud provider liable completely. So there's a whole new dynamic of who becomes liable when I'm breached. Is it Amazon or Microsoft that's going to get in trouble? Or is it me? Or is it both of us? It's hard to determine the liability vector um, in this new world of hybrid. So I, I think that also plays to your point that makes people want to stay in the data center a whole lot longer. It all comes back to risk, right? And risk versus reward, I guess. And there are certain workloads, whenever you're changing anything, it doesn't matter matter if, if the thing you're moving to is better or worse, equal to the same, whatever. Whenever you change anything, you're adding differences. And if you have a, a team, you know, the, these are organizations we refer to as infrastructure up, right? Where they came from the data center and they're moving into the cloud. It, it's a paradigm shift in terms of the way you think about things and everything else. And that 
opens the door to making mistakes and opening up gaps. And, you know, security is a perfect example. The new innovations tend to leave security behind for some reason. It, eventually, I hope we'll learn this to where we put the security first. But I, I want to sum this up. You know, I call this thing the, the bigger truth in tech because I really want to provide advice and usable advice to IT decision makers. If there was a kind of one fundamental rule, a good rule of thumb that you could recommend to enterprise leaders that are looking at how do we modernize apps, look at our app infrastructure, maybe embrace the cloud for containers, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is make sure with Kubernetes, you go pure upstream. Do not get stuck in proprietary. Um, and that's the first recommendation I make to anybody that I advise on going down the direction of Kubernetes. Make sure it's a cloud native compute foundation certified Kubernetes pure upstream edition with no modification. That's the first thing. The second thing is be careful of stateful. Stateful is a dangerous direction that Kubernetes has gone. It's a human stupidity move on our part to make Kubernetes a stateful platform, but yet we've done this and now we've caused ourselves some portability challenges. Um, make sure you really understand the benefits of Kubernetes and where most importantly to use it and focus on the stateless first, not the stateful, because the stateful will get you into a very vendor locked in approach. You do not want to be locked in with Kubernetes. You want to be unleashed. So be careful when you go stateful because you're going to get locked in. Um, and if you do go stateful, try to do stateful in as open source way as possible. Um, make sure you're focusing on broad portability. And this is very similar to what we saw in hypervising before we had the OVF, just migrating a VHD to VMDX from VMware to Hyper-V was a nightmare. We don't want to get into that repeated problem again with Kubernetes. The third thing I'll say is security has to be a first class decision for you when you do Kubernetes because Kubernetes is one of the largest, most exposed platforms in terms of security vulnerabilities. If you go to Shodan IO, if you go look at the exposure rates of Kubernetes, it's off the charts. If you do not secure it by default, you will wish you did later and it will be hard to correct after you've deployed it because Kubernetes is a complex architecture. You can't go back and put security in after the fact. It's very difficult to do that. So make sure you're leading with security by default when you're deploying your clusters and building your hybrid clusterized solutions. Most importantly, make sure if you're going to go to a cloud provider that you're going to a cloud provider that supports the open source, pure upstream Kubernetes capabilities. Don't get locked into an cloud provider who starts taking you down the proprietary direction. And there is a cloud provider out there, I won't name names, that is trying to lock in their customers on a very proprietary focused Kubernetes solution. Do not get stuck in that decision point, avoid that. And really focus on open source. Um, open source has come of age. If you look at everybody who's in the public and private Kubernetes directive, they are all flexing open source. So your applications, your container native applications, they're all open source. They're all free. Take advantage of that marketplace, that open source ecosystem. Look at VMware with Bitnami's acquisition. That was an open source app catalog. Look at all of these application catalogs that are out there from the likes of Google and Azure and Amazon. Look at what's out there from Docker. That open source ecosystem is just impressive. Take advantage of it. And then the last thing I'd say is make sure you're really, really focusing on 
what data you want to bring into the Kubernetes world. Because one of the downsides to Kubernetes is it takes a whole new type of storage ecosystem to truly unleash Kubernetes. Your legacy storage environments will not cut it at scale to support you as you start to move and shift to really embracing Kubernetes as your compute platform. Start looking at container native storage solutions. Start researching it and really start to test these new container native storage solutions because they are aligned to support Kubernetes and they are best in breed at the performance and the real-time response that Kubernetes needs to perform storage queries and storage response at scale. SANS and NASs simply will not be able to do Kubernetes at the level of container native storage. And I think that paradigm shift is important for people to uh, get, it, get in front of um, and start to do a lot of research on the vendor ecosystem that bases the CNS platforms. Wow, Peter. So, you know, I, that should teach me to ask you for one piece of advice. Moving <laughs> there was so much in there. We can talk for three hours on unpacking every single one of those. Each one of those is, is not only great advice, but it's nuanced because it highlights, you know, challenges with tr traditional infrastructure in supporting cloud native environments, just the essential nature of security in addition to open source and, and really leveraging containers for what they were designed for, which are those stateless apps. A lot of insights in there. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. It was a pleasure being with you. And I look forward to many more, my friend. Absolutely. Well, that's all we have for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. For more insights from Enterprise Strategy Group, please visit our website, esg-global.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at Scott underscore S-I-N. And please rate and review the podcast. That's it. We're out.